Lord our God, your word is powerful to make us wise for salvation in Jesus Christ. And we pray today that you will fulfill that purpose in our hearts and lives, that we may indeed live wisely, knowing that we are saved by Jesus and living for his return. Amen. Well, this is how the world ends. Not with a bang, but a whimper. That was uh, T.S. Eliot in a famous poem, The Hollow Man, written in the light of the first great war of uh, last century. This is how the world ends, not with a bang, but a whimper. And for centuries, humanity has been fascinated by how the world might end, if indeed you think it might. There was Neville Shute's classic novel turned into a film, I think, with Marlon Brando, filmed in Melbourne, my home city, on the beach. And Melbourne, the most livable city in the world at the moment, is the last city left alive at the end of the world in Neville Shute's novel and film. But great authors have written end-of-the-world type of books, and many of them have become films, H.G. Wells, Stephen King, Cormac McCarthy, Margaret Atwood, the list goes on and on and on. All these variations on a theme, how will the world end? And through the sequence of visions in the book of Revelation that began in chapter 4, there is a build-up in effect to how the world ends. And in this section today, we take another and relatively decisive step closer for, in many respects, now we get to the end of the world. You may know if you've been here in recent weeks that in the book of Revelation we have sequences of seven, uh, sequences of sevens, uh, seven seals broken and bringing about various things, seven trumpets blown, and now comes the last numbered sequence of seven, the seven bowls or plagues that these angels bring. And this is the end of the world in many respects, at least the end of the world as we might know it. Revelation, hopefully by now you know, is not a simple story. It's not a narrative. It's not a chronological sequence of things that will follow one after the other as if chapter 7 comes after chapter 6 and 8 after 7 and so on. Not strictly like that. It seems to me a good illustration to help us grasp the nature of what's going on in Revelation is a little bit like the waves on a seashore. You imagine the tide is coming in and you're walking along the beach or watching and the waves, not every wave comes further than the one before it, but gradually a wave comes in and recedes, the next one comes, and over time we are making progress as the tide rises, or indeed the opposite, the tide goes out. And that's sort of what's happening in Revelation. That is not strictly a chronological sequence of events, a little bit like waves that come in and go back and come in, and gradually we are making progress, but there's elements of repetition as the different visions and sequences overlap with each other and overlap with what's preceded it as well. So today we're riding a wave. We're riding a wave as the last sequence of numbered visions in Revelation, the 
angels, uh, bowls or plagues as they are unfurled for us. But as we do that, and this is where I think the, the wacky Christian teachers of our world fail to get it right, and often deliberately, I suspect, we need to remember that all of this is under the exact authority and control of the Lamb, of Jesus. For the whole sequence of visions begins with him. It's Jesus who brings this all about. We are not in the middle of a terror here, thinking how are we going to get out. We are in the middle of a sequence of visions And we know that it's brought about because of the Lamb. And secondly, we need to remember that it's brought about because of the Lamb's victory. There's a great difference. I love reading murder mystery novels, but they are spoiled if I know the answer at the beginning. You imagine opening a murder mystery novel, and the very beginning it says, the butler did it. Well, to me, that would be boring. It's a little bit like watching a football match in replay. So you know the result, it loses all interest to me. In Revelation, interestingly, we know the the outcome from the beginning. Jesus wins, the Lamb wins. So we need to read all of this with that knowledge. It doesn't actually make uh, Revelation boring at all. You see, sometimes we know the result and it's interesting. You imagine how many times you've watched Tom and Jerry... You always know that Tom will not succeed. Tom's the terror in Revelation. He never wins, but he looks fierce. But that's what's going on in this book. We know the victory, and we need to read it in the light and context of that. And then we need to remember, as we were reminded last week as well, this is to encourage us to patient endurance as believers. This is not to terrorize us. It's not to make us afraid. It's not to push us into all sorts of obscure puzzles to try and work out which day of which year Jesus is returning. Not at all. This is to encourage us to patient endurance. We're not meant to be scared or afraid. God's people are being kept safe eternally because the Lamb has won. Prayers are answered. And God ultimately is vindicated. That context is critical as we then focus on the different visions and sequences, the different pictures, the different waves that are coming in towards the climax of the Lord's return. The text we've read today overlaps with last week, just as waves overlap because it sort of belongs, I think, together uh, more today. But in a way, the beginning of chapter 15 is the preparation for what we're focusing on, in fact, today. John is given another sign in heaven at the beginning of chapter 15, the angels with the plagues, but they're announced. They don't actually come until a few verses later. It's the preparation for them at the beginning of chapter 15. John sees what a appears to be a sea of glass, maybe just an absolutely still sea or lake mingled with fire. It's a strange sort of image in a way. And those who have, who 
had conquered the beast who's come in previous chapters, uh, they are standing there with their harps and they're singing praises. They're singing the song of Moses. Moses' song was just before he died in Deuteronomy 32, but there's another song of Moses in Exodus 15 that was our first reading today. And there seem to be a few more connections, in fact, back to that one as well. And that's part of, in a way, what what they're singing reflects that in verses 3 and 4. And the point of all this is to say believers are safe. In the sequence of terrors that are about to be unleashed, believers are safe. They are not the victims of what we are about to read. And we also need to remember one of these interesting things in the book of Revelation is how many hymns and songs there are. You know, sometimes people come to church and they've said to me over the years, oh, we sing too many songs. Well, in Revelation, there are lots. And one of the things about the songs in Revelation is that they are songs of victory, salvation, and praise. And though often they're given in the context of this is what heaven is singing, it is for believers to sing now. So that in the midst of this world's trials and terrors, we sing now the praises of God as God's saved people. And that's what's going on here as it sets the context for this last numbered sequence of visions, the bowls of the angels that are about to come. The angels arrive in verse 5, so they're announced back in verse 1. Technically, today's passage begins with verse 5. After this I looked, and the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was opened. We need to remember that we do not take everything absolutely literally in, the, in Revelation, because later in Revelation there is no temple or sanctuary in heaven at all. So what happens in Revelation are we get pictures that are connections, they have connotations to things, and here already we have the reference to Moses, Moses the one who led the people out of slavery in Egypt towards to the very urge, uh, verge of the promised land. We have reference to his song. Some of the words in verses 3 and 4 remind us of the song of victory of crossing the Red Sea. And now the sanctuary of the tent of witness, the, that's not even the temple in the Old Testament, that precedes it. That's what Moses instructed the Israelites to build the presence of God in the midst. So there's lots of allusions here. Indeed, the glory of God is another one here that is taking us back to the Exodus event, the rescue from slavery, the wilderness wanderings into then the promised land. And that, I think, is why this is part of the vision here. It's a reminder of what God has done before. He's overthrown a ruthless tyrant who was seeking to kill and destroy the people of God, namely Pharaoh. And he's done it astonishingly with amazing plagues. And he's brought them to safety beyond the sea, where they sing his praise in Exodus 15. And then through that wilderness, they will ultimately come to the promised land. Now, for those who know this story, and for those who see the connections That's, in a way, the message here. You are facing a tyrant of Rome seeking to destroy you and kill you. But just as God has done to Pharaoh in the past, so he's doing or will do soon. 
in the future. And just as he brought you out by plagues and pestilence, that's what's about to happen here, and he brought you to safety beyond the sea, that's the picture we've just seen here in the opening verses of chapter 15 for those who are believers standing by the sea playing the harps and singing the songs of praise. So what God has done in the past, God's going to do again, and in a bigger and better way and a more decisive and final way. That's what's going on here. So much of Revelation is interpreted in the light of the Old Testament. Here it's Exodus. More usually it's uh, Zechariah, Ezekiel, and Daniel. So we ought to be aware of our Old Testaments and see the connections, the allusions, and therefore the encouragement that is being given to us. We know from the opening vision of chapter 4 that around the throne of God there are four living creatures in chapters 4 and 5, and it's they who give the angels the bowls of God's wrath in verse 7. Seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God. Again, it's an exodus and wilderness illusion where the tabernacle was completed in the very last paragraphs of the book of Exodus. It was filled with the glory of God, his presence with his people to lead them through the wilderness to the promised land. And here is the connection back again to that. In chapter 5, there were golden bowls, and they were filled with incense, and they were the prayers of the saints. Is there a deliberate connection here? By using bowls as the imagery, even though these are filled with wrath, not incense, is there an illusion there that the prayers of the saints are being answered here? They pray, how long, O Lord? Bring vindication, O Lord. And now, finally, we're getting to the end, basically, where the prayers of the saints are indeed answered. Well, these allusions to Exodus are meant to encourage the believers, of course, that just as their forebears suffered so extremely in Egypt, so they are headed to a greater promised land. And as God rescued them, he's rescued, that is, as God had rescued the Israelites, so he has ransomed and redeemed, Exodus language, believers in the blood of Jesus, the Lamb who was victorious back in chapter 5. As Pharaoh was defeated, so will Rome be defeated. And for us who read this 2,000 years nearly after John, the message is that as God has raised up victory over tyrants time and time and time again, if you are reading this under the oppression of some tyrant seeking to demolish and destroy the people of God, take comfort. The Lamb's victorious, and as God has rescued in the past, so he keeps rescuing until the day of the Lord's return. So for those who lived under the shackles of Hitler's fascism, under Pol Pot, under a military junta in Uh, Myanmar for 60 years, under the threat of persecution against militant and obnoxious evil Islam in the Middle East today, what comfort these words must bring. And I suspect that one reason we find Revelation tough is because we don't know the extremes of persecution. And so we find this book a sort of puzzle more than a comfort But I find for my friends from Pakistan when I teach there, for example, 
This book is comforting rather than confusing. And so it is. The bowls, as they are unleashed in chapter 16, in many ways have connections back in chapter 8, where there was a sequence of trumpets and various things that came out on the earth. There are lots of similarities with that, but some big differences. Like Revelation 8, the first four deal with the earth, the sea, the rivers, and the sun. And we might be thinking, well, this is just a repeat. But actually, there's a step further forward that's being taken here. For in chapter 8, they were partial destruction, a third of the earth or a quarter or something like that. But here it's the whole lot. And so what it's telling us is that there have been warnings in the past. Revelation 8 is that expressed symbolically. But now we're at the end. And we know all the way through the Old Testament history of the people of Israel that the enemy attacks, the famines, the lack of rain, for example, in Elijah's day, they were curses, they were judgment, but they were also warnings to turn back to God. But now we're getting to the end. Now we're getting to, this is not a warning. Now this is the full thing that's coming out with these bowls. There's a greater intensity and there's certainly no limitation on the plagues that are in these bowls now. And what that is saying is that for this world, their time of repentance is over. For ancient Israel, apostate and idolatrous and immoral, these sorts of things were warnings to them. Judgment, yes, but warnings to repent. And so it was with chapter 8. So it is with Jesus' words about the times that will come before his return. Repent, repent. But now we're getting to the end of the world. Now this judgment, these plagues are unlimited. God's people are not in the middle of this. They're on the side of the sea, safe. This is now the final judgment being portrayed. The first bowl of plagues in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 16 are boils. And like in Exodus as well, uh, a similar sort of thing uh, with, the first, with one of the plagues, the uh, fourth plague. Um, sorry, the sixth plague against Pharaoh. So there's some connections back, a reminder to God's people that what God will do for them and in keeping them safe, the judgment that's coming, you can take comfort in this message because of what God's done before against Pharaoh. So painful and harmful boils or sores on the skin of people. Uh, Remember, Christians are not the target here. They are safe. This is the world and judgment. And it afflicts those who have engaged in the worship of the beast. That's the beast from earlier chapters, 12, 13. The beast that is is idolatrous. The beast that is false worship. The beast that is drawing worship to the emperor of Rome as well. In the second bowl of uh, plagues in verse uh, 3 and uh, in verse 3, Uh, Now there's water turned to blood. It reminds us of the Nile turned to blood in the very uh, first plague against Pharaoh in the book of Exodus. Back in chapter 8, the seas only partially die, but here it seems that it is total. In the third bowl, a bit like the second, the rivers, the springs of water, not just the seawater, but now the fresh water, it also turns to blood. And its effect is total and final. There's no partial judgment here. There's no limitation being expressed here. 
There's no second chance, no warnings. And after the third bowl, there's a little pause. A little, it's not quite an interlude, but there is some speech. The speech is striking, and it helps us interpret what's going on. The speech comes in verses uh, 5 and 6, expressed like poetry, like a song, as you can see in the printing. Just are you, O Holy One, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments, for they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. Now, on the surface, that seems straightforward. There's a few things we need to uh, pay attention to in these words. It reminds us of Exodus again, calling God the Holy One. They are given blood to drink because they shed blood, so their punishment is an appropriate punishment. But the drinking or eating of blood is always prohibited, not just for God's people, but for any person in Genesis 9, for example. That, and that's because in the blood is life. So here their drinking of blood is their death. It's forbidden. Their punishment fits the crime. Perhaps the key thing here, just are you. God, this is justice. This is right. This is what they deserve this judgment. And the reply comes in verse 7 from the altar. Well, this is not an altar, it's a table. Some people call it an altar wrongly. Can you imagine it speaking? Of course not. Under the altar in Revelation are the martyrs, and uh, it's perhaps them who are calling out. Those who've died for their faith. It may even be God himself, but that would normally come from the sanctuary rather than from the altar. And this is addressed to God. Yes, Lord God, the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. I think it's those who've died already for the faith. And they are echoing what's just been said by the angel in charge of the waters. God's judgment is just and fair. It's a fierce judgment. These plagues extending over the world, the death, for those who worship the beast, but it is just and fair. Now, the significance of this, we might brush it over and say, oh, yes, I understand that. But the significance of this is that it is so easy to deny or hate the judgment of God. It's the first thing the serpent denied in the Garden of Eden. And often it's the first part of the package of what we might call Christian doctrine that gets flipped over. That so often you hear in the pulpits around our Christian world, God doesn't judge. God's not like that. God's more of a benign grandfatherly figure. But as soon as that goes, and people often think you can remove that part of the doctrine and the rest will hold together, but they're fools. Because Christian truth is an integrity and a unity. And if you flip over the the little piece that says judgment, the whole thing collapses on itself. For if God never judges sin, 
and God's judgment is not just and right and pure and something to even give thanks and praise for, why did Jesus die? And if Jesus' death is a waste, there goes the incarnation, there goes the the trinity, there goes the salvation, the doctrine of redemption and grace. It all falls apart. And if there is no ultimate judgment by God, then there's no ethics in Christianity either. Live and live for yourself. So actually, there's nothing left if you remove the peace of the judgment of God. But so often, we hear in some Christian circles this denial of judgment, which in the end is the serpent's words. And they're not God's words. And they are evil words. And they are untrue words. We see it, I think, sometimes with different, say, approaches into Christianity. So one of the most popular and effective courses in recent 20 years is the Alpha course. And it's got much that it is good. But at its heart, there is no judgment from God and therefore no repentance and therefore a weak doctrine of the cross and Jesus' death and resurrection for us. Now, perhaps that course is not fully heretical, but it's very imbalanced. And in the end, it does portray a wrong view of God. When judgment goes, everything goes. And so we need to be make sure that we are in line with what's being sung here. Just and true are your judgments, O God. Do we share that perspective, a biblical perspective, not just a revelation exotic view, but it's fully the view of the whole of the Bible from old, from Genesis to Revelation? Is that our view? Do we rejoice in God's just and right judgment? The martyrs never deny it. The lamentations of the Psalms and the book of Lamentations, they never deny judgment. And nor, of course, does Jesus. And we must remember that central to the evangelistic preaching, not as a secondary issue for people who've already entered the door, is that God has fixed a day when he will have the world judged in righteousness by Jesus. The voice of the angel and the altar are saying, just are your ways. Prayers will be answered. God will be vindicated. So keep enduring with patience. We come back to the bowls. The fourth one comes in verse 8. The sun going black, just again, another reminder of the book of Exodus. And it's again linked to chapter 8 of Revelation, where there is also darkness. But now, now it seems it's total, not partial. And the people who refused to repent when the sun turned dark will now indeed face intense heat. And this is given, it's under God's sovereign command. But as verse 9 tells us, in some of the saddest words we could ever read, actually, they did not repent and give him glory. The last chance has passed. Like Pharaoh. The fifth bowl of verses 10 and 11. Again, more darkness, a bit like Exodus, the ninth plague in Exodus 
and again full darkness here. It's appropriate, of course, because Satan is the prince of darkness and men love darkness more than light. And there's more cursing as well, more lack of repentance here as well. And then comes the sixth bowl in verse 12. God drying up the waters as he did for the Red Sea. And perhaps that's part of it here, although it seems to have a slightly different function. God had dried up the Red Sea so that his people could be safe. He dried up the Jordan River so they could enter the Promised Land. But here, the drying up of the Euphrates River, the major river northeast of Israel, dried up so the enemies from the east can come. Again, probably it's, a, it's an image and a picture but here it's suggesting that, that the enemies will come and that God's enemies will therefore fall. That is, it's the enemies of God's enemies here. The enemy attacks. And typical of Revelation, when you get to the sixth of a sequence, there is an interlude, an intermission. Not quite an advertisement break and not quite a sort of get up and chat break. But we have a little pause before we get to the seventh. And so that's what happens here in verse 13. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouths of the false prophet, the three fierce characters of previous chapters, three unclean spirits like ferocious, fierce dragons and lions. No, uh, like frogs. It's a bit of an anticlimax, isn't it? One person puts it like this, um, that such mighty and seemingly invincible beasts could produce only frog-like spirits is a devastating caricature of the failure of evil. That may be what we're meant to read, because there were frogs in the plague of Exodus as well. But it does seem to be an anticlimax. Not everyone likes frogs. I remember once camping in North Queensland and in the middle of the night walking over to the toilet block and lifting up the toilet seat and out jumped a frog and I was nearly in ICU with a heart attack at 2 o'clock in the morning. But they're not that ferocious. They're not that scary. Here it seems to be a, a sort of mockery of their evil. But then it goes on to say in verse 14, For they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. Well, maybe we're not to look too literally at these frogs. I think it is partly the mockery of evil that really, in the end, this is not such a ferocious force. It's a frog force. That's all. And now they're getting ready to assemble against God on the great day of God the Almighty. And then we have in brackets here, Behold, I'm coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go around naked and be seen exposed. Are you ready for this great day? Are you ready for the great day of the Lord? It's echoing, of course, Jesus' words. And Paul says much the same thing as well. Are you ready for it? And they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. Now we come to the end of the world. Now we come to the final day, the day of the Lord. Long anticipated through the Old Testament prophets, through Jesus speaking much about it 
in Mark 13 and parallel passages. And Paul alluding to it and referring to it in various places, such as in 1 Thessalonians as well. Now we're coming to the great day, the final day, the day of Armageddon. And are you ready for this day? Well, this is a bit more important about are you being ready for BN, as the Prime Minister so stupidly said in Penang a couple of years ago. Are you ready for the great day, the day of the Lord, the day of Armageddon? We might want to shy away from this idea, Armageddon, because we know that there are so many crackpot preachers who go on and on about Armageddon. Let me tell you, it's a real place. I've been there a few times. Literally in Hebrew, it means the hill of Megiddo. Megiddo is a place, uh, one of Solomon's fortified cities, and uh, a significant place because it's on a crossroad. And in the ancient world, crossroads are strategic places for security. And so over the centuries, Solomon had made it his, uh, one of his fortress cities in the Old Testament times. It was a battle even long before Solomon when the Egyptians fought there. Judges, five, Sisera, that's nearby. The Assyrians under Sennacherib fought here. Josiah the king was killed here. Alexander the Great fought here. The Jewish Maccabees had a fight here against Greece in the second century. In the Crusades, there were battles here. Napoleon fought here. And famously, at the, near the end of the First War, Allenby, the British general, fought and won here as well. This is a battleground in history, a real place. And what is so striking here, where's the battle? All these nations are being assembled by frogs to fight against God on the great day of God. And they've all assembled at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. I don't think this is a literal battlefield. It's, again, imagery that has Old Testament background. It's creating a message for us in its apocalyptic style. But where's the battle? It's not even described. It's the great day of God Almighty. We might expect the mother of all battles on that day. It's referring to Jesus' return, the thief in the night. But in the end, there is no battle. Because the victory's been won already. And as we'll see from verse 16 to the end of the chapter, it's more like they get ready for battle and, oh, we're lost. There's no battle. That's how weak, how impotent, how foolish and froggish these evil forces are. It's almost laughing at them. So when we get into the seventh bowl and the seventh angel in verse 17, poured out his bowl into the air and a loud voice came out from the temple, that's God, from the throne, that's God and the Lamb, saying, get ready for battle? No, it's done. Does it remind you of anything? The last words of Jesus on the cross, it is finished, it is done. That's the victory. We're not afraid or anticipating a great big battle on the final day of the Lord's return. When he comes again, he comes triumphant. He's already won. He's already been victorious. Yes, all the nations may rage and they may all gather to fight against him when he comes. But when he comes, oh, we've already lost. We lost on the cross. There's no battle on the final day. It's the announcement of Jesus' triumph. 
and this last part of the chapter is such, well, if you're an enemy of God, if you're one of these kings worshipping the beast, this is so demoralizing, so dispiriting. It is done. The lamb has won, is how it was put back in chapter 5. He's won already. How important this is to grasp, because how often Christians go astray and think, oh, yes, Jesus won on the cross, but he's going to have to come and fight again and win again on the final day. Not at all. He's won already. He's Lord already. He's sovereign already, and he will be forever. And there'll be no challenge to that that carries any weight. Oh, it looks as though ancient Rome is mighty against the gospel of God. And it looks like that in our day with militant Islam rampaging through North Africa and the Middle East. And it looks like that in some countries of the world where it's forbidden to be a Christian like that nutty person in North Korea. And it looks as though the enemies of God are building up their their powers more and more. But when Jesus returns, they are already nothing. Defeated already. So don't be caught up into these zany views of what's going to happen at the end. It's simple and clear. Jesus will return victorious and triumphant. And the enemy forces that may look forward to that and think we're going to get him at last, nothing. Not even a battle. It is done. The battle's a non-event. It's the mother of all non-battles. And what we see in the last part of the chapter then Flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, a great earthquake such as there had never been since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake. Wow. Our brothers and sisters in Kathmandu might be a little bit afraid of this earthquake. The great city, Rome that is, not Babylon. Babylon is Rome, was split into three parts and the cities of the nations fell and God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. Just as Babylon, the great enemy in the Old Testament, fell, as Pharaoh had fallen earlier, so will Rome, and so will every regime and ruler and despot that is trying to stamp out Christianity in our world. And they will fail. And so when Jesus returns, this is the end of the world. An earthquake tearing it apart. There's no enemy attack on the returning Lord Jesus at all. The islands fled away. Maybe that's poignant for John, exiled on the island of Patmos. No mountains were to be found and great hailstones, 100 pounds each. My goodness, that'll do damage to your car. (laughs) Fell from heaven on people and they cursed God for the plague of the hail because the hail plague was so severe. A reminder again of Exodus and hail. But notice the result. They cursed God. How terribly sad. Oh, just and true are your ways, O God. Your judgments are right. Their punishment is deserved. But they stubbornly refuse to repent. Like Pharaoh, like Rome, like so many in our world. Living so vehemently anti-Jesus because they love darkness more than light. Brothers and sisters, we think we face persecution and opposition in this country, and we do, more than Australia, my home country. But we have brothers and sisters in our world who face it much more ferociously than we do here. 
The whole purpose of this is to encourage us to patient endurance. We may think that the enmity against the gospel of Jesus is unrelenting, is formidable. But rather than being ferocious, it is froggish. It will come to nothing because Jesus has already won. So we are to wait with patient endurance for the day of his return. That means, firstly, not to be deceived by false teachers. That's what Revelation keeps drawing us to. Not to be caught up with misguided theories about the end or the present for that matter. Not to be drawn into the seduction of denying judgment and therefore promoting universalism which is very common even in Malaysia, to deny the centrality and sufficiency of Jesus' death and victory for us. But secondly, we are not to be drawn into immorality. That's part of what Revelation is on about. So the deception of immorality in our world is vast. We are facing evil attacks at the level of ethics every day around our world. And not just sexual ethics at all. We must stand firm, waiting and enduring with godly character and lives. Nor are we thirdly to yield to Christian, anti-Christian hostility. This book is a warning to us, as chapter 12, for example, said, not to shrink from death. My goodness, all over the world we Christians are shrinking from death and we are loving life so much, but not here. It doesn't mean that we run to death in a stupid way, but we're not afraid of dying for our faith because death has lost its sting in Jesus' resurrection. And it means that we should not despair at IS or BN or any other acronym that is out to stop the gospel of Jesus Christ. And fourthly, and dangerously, we are not to, as William said last week, nod off, doze in our armchairs, complacent and comfortable. For he is coming like a thief in the night. Will we be ready and alert? Like waves on a shore, the tide is coming in. The bowls are ready, but Jesus reigns. Over all of this, it's all he's doing. He reigns. The lion has already triumphed. So be patient. Endure. In the truth, in godliness, in repentance, ready for him for this is how the world ends not with a bang or a whimper but with the lamb who was slain come Lord Jesus Amen